Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to the broadcast ministry of Return to the Word with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now, here is pastor and author Mark Fontecchio. A judge was interviewing a woman about her pending divorce, and he asked the question, what are the grounds for your divorce? She replied, about four acres and a nice little home in the middle of the property with a stream running by. No, he said. I mean, what is the foundation of this case? Well, it's made of concrete, brick, and mortar, she responded. I mean, he continued, what are your relations like? I have an aunt and an uncle living here in town, and so do my husband's parents. He said, do you have a real grudge? No, she replied, we have a carport and have never really needed one. <laughs> Please, he tried again. Is there any infidelity in your marriage. Yes, both my son and daughter have stereo sets. We don't necessarily like the music, but the answer to your question is yes. Ma'am, does your husband ever beat you up? Yes, she responded. About twice a week, he gets up earlier than I do. Finally, in frustration, the judge asked, lady, why do you want a divorce? Oh, I don't want a divorce. I never wanted a divorce. My husband does. He says he can't communicate with me. <laughs> I see his point. Did you know that there is a village known as Ubang in southern Nigeria where the men and women actually speak two different languages, completely different languages? They view, and this is the part I find so interesting, they view these differences as unique blessings from God. It's almost like two different lexicons. They have some words in common, but then there are words that are completely different. They don't sound alike. They don't have the same letters even. They're completely different words. And they're able to understand each other. Why? Well, because the boys, when they grow up, they grow up speaking the female language because they spend most of their time with their mothers. But by the age of 10, it shifts. That's when it has to shift. And they're expected to speak the male language as evidence of entry into manhood. It's really not that much different here in the States, is it? Imagine a couple who decide to start writing in journals, in journals, their thoughts for the day. Her journal. Let me read from it. Tonight, my husband was acting weird. We had made plans to meet at a nice restaurant for dinner. Conversation wasn't flowing. So I suggested that we go somewhere quiet so we could talk. He agreed, but he didn't say much. I asked him what was wrong. He said, nothing. I asked him if it was my fault that he was upset. He said he wasn't upset, that it had nothing to do with me at all, not to worry about it. And on the way home, I told him that I loved him. He smiled slightly and kept driving. When we got home, he just sat there quietly and watched TV. He seemed to be distant and absent. Finally, with silence all around of us, I decided to go to bed. 
But about 15 minutes later, he came to bed, but I felt that he was still distracted and his thoughts were somewhere else. He fell asleep. I don't know what else to do. His journal, rough day, boat wouldn't start, can't figure out why. That's it. (laughs) And that's truth. You know it is. It's truth. I can think all day long about why something isn't working right. So this morning, in our continued study of Genesis, one of the things that I want you to understand is that there are some wonderful differences. There are some really big differences, in case you haven't noticed. There are some wonderful differences between men and women, which God intends for us to recognize and enjoy. Instead of being the things that drive us apart, they're actually meant to be the things that we celebrate and enjoy about each other. So this morning, we are going to look at Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to look at a marriage made by God. Join me there as we start with verse 1. Verse 1 starts by saying, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. God finished creating on day six. We are now looking at the seventh day. And we are learning from the text that God was finished with his creation. God is still working today, isn't he? God still works today. We know that to be true. How do we know that? Well, he's still upholding his creation. We learn this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. But his initial creative work was done. Now, does God get tired? No, God the Son did in human form, correct? But not the eternal God in his glorified state. So when the Hebrew talks of rest, what is it talking about? It's just meaning that he stopped his work. He stopped working. It is the satisfaction that comes from accomplishment. I put new steps on my back deck last fall. And I mean, it it turned out exactly how I had planned it. It worked out exactly how I wanted it. And underestimating, I went outside at least 20 times. I still go outside and I still bring it up to my family. How nice the steps look. I stand back and I look at my beautiful creation that I made. My beautiful steps. You know that feeling of accomplishment deep within you. But how much more for the creator? Think of that. How much more for our God? God enjoyed his creation. And after having just created the entire heavens and the earth and everything that's on it, notice what he did on the seventh day. It says he blessed it. He sanctified it because this seventh day would become the basis for the Mosaic law. Now, I've heard a lot of bad teaching on this, a lot of bad teaching on this, telling us that we need to observe the Sabbath rest because of this here in Genesis 2. But first, this was not a Sabbath rest. That's not what's actually going on here. This was not a Sabbath rest. There's no indication afterwards that Adam, Noah, Abraham, or anyone else observed this before the Mosaic law for Israel. It's not a Sabbath rest. It becomes eventually the basis for the Sabbath rest under the Mosaic law, but don't get the cart in front of the horse. That's not what's happening here. And second, as you hear me say often, the church is not Israel and Israel is not the church. 
Correct? The church is not Israel. Israel's not the church. And so we are not under the law. We observe the Lord's day today. The first day of the week is a pattern that we see in the book of Acts. But a universal seven-day week, you ever wonder where that came from? Well, most cultures hold to it today. And this is where it came from. It came from God's creation, the seven-day week. Creation week is the basis for the working week. Exodus teaches us this. And God made everything in six days. Now, I want you to notice carefully the wording of verse 4. It says, this is the history of the heavens and earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. This is the history of the heavens. Or these are the generations, some of your translations say, of the heavens and the earth. Now, this is the first time of many times that Moses uses this wording here. Toledot, if you're reading it in Hebrew, toledot. These Toledotes mark the different sections of the book, telling us that everything up until this point in the book was actually the prologue of the book of Genesis. It was the prologue. But this first Hebrew Toledote section of scripture is of the heavens and earth. It's about what became of creation. God created it, chapter 1. Now this is what became of creation. And it's not correct to call it a second creation account because this section presupposes the creation events of the prologue. It presupposes everything that has come before in the text. And it does not say anything specific here in chapter 2 about a lot of things, the creation of land, the stars, and the sea. So the high point of chapter 1 was God's creation of mankind. That was the high point. This section now expands on that teaching, giving us a whole chapter dedicated to man's creation. Now, this took place in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Hear this carefully. This took place in the day that Yahweh Elohim made the earth and the heavens. There's a reason this is here. It's the first time this compound name for God is used in Scripture. It's a title that suggests something very important. The creator of the universe can be in fellowship with man. Elohim, what does it mean? It's the powerful God who creates. Yahweh, the very personal, intimate name of the God of Israel. Now, I want you to keep in mind a few things. I want you to keep in mind that they had tablets that they easily could have handed down and handed down these words to the patriarchs. I'm telling you this, that Moses was used by God to write most of the book. But these words up through chapter 4 easily could be the words first written down by Adam under God's inspiration. Easily could be. And if it is, this would explain why. Here in these chapters, the more personal name, Yahweh, was attached to the powerful name for God. See, Adam knew God. Adam saw his creative power. He saw it. Yom, day, as I explained back in chapter 1, it is used differently here to refer to a period of time around God's creation. We do the same thing. We've talked about this. We do the same thing in English. But here we recognize that Adam or Moses used the word day. This was, in my previous illustration in chapter 1, back in Grandma's day, or here in Genesis, back in the creation week. And then we start reading this in verse 5. 
where it says, Before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground, but a mist went up in the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Now this is not repeating the entire creation account. This is not repeating the entire creation account. This is telling us what the earth was like just before God created mankind. And the focus here is on what was not there yet. That's the focus. What was not there at this point? So back in chapter 1, if you remember from our studies, back in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12 already told us about God creating certain things like the grass and the herbs and the fruit trees. This is not a contradiction here in chapter 2. Some people attack it and say it is. But we have different wording used. Chapter 1 referred to a general wording about plants, grass, vegetation. But here the wording is much more specific. This is only referring to the shrubs of the field, the plants of the field. Think of things like grains, rice, vegetables, the things man would actually need to cultivate. And so the idea is that in chapter 1, God created the land vegetation, but certain groups had not yet sprouted. Why? Because this was just before man was created. And Adam wasn't there yet to cultivate the crops. Doesn't it make perfect sense? It all fits together. Verse 5 also tells us that the Lord had not yet caused it to rain on the earth. And so now, a lot of people assume that this means it never rained before the flood. For a long time, creation scientists assumed this, that verse 5 meant it never rained before the flood. The Bible tells us there was a mist, which could be better translated as springs of water, that came up and watered the whole face of the ground. Now, it is very true that the rainbow is first mentioned in Genesis 9, 13. It's the first time it's mentioned. But if you read carefully in Genesis 9, it actually does not tell us in Genesis 9 that it was the first rainbow. It doesn't say that. And I want you to notice carefully here in verse 5 that this was the watering system that God had in place before man was even created. This is the clear meaning of the text in Genesis 2. And the Bible is silent, so we have to be silent. The Bible is silent about whether or not it rained before the flood in Genesis 5. We simply don't know. We know this. A lot of time went by. Over 1,600 years went by before the flood. And there's no evidence that the laws of nature, the ways that God upholds his creation, were different before the flood from what they are now. But they would have had to be. They would have had to be if there was no evaporation, no precipitation, and no dispersion of light to produce a rainbow before the flood. So here's what I'm telling you. It either rained before the flood, and there were rainbows before the flood, or God acted very differently in upholding his creation that sustained millions of people for over 1,600 years in a way that contradicts what we know today about lights, plants, and moisture. But now God creates Adam in verse 7, and look at what he says. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and the earth, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and a man became, what? A living being. Genesis 1 told us that God made a man and a woman after his image. Here we see the care of the creator. 
Now the text is wonderful. It's very intimate. It says the Lord God, Yahweh, Elohim, created the man. He formed, he molded. Like a potter with a clay is the word image. God carefully formed man. You're not an afterthought. In other words, God carefully made us. He didn't create Adam from nothing. He used the dust of the earth to do it. Paul said this very thing in 1 Corinthians 15 when he said, and so it is written, the first man became a living being. And again, just two verses later, he said the first man was of the earth made of dust. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Notice that the earth itself could not form this living human being. Life only came when God specifically breathed life into the man. And I find it fascinating that this was not required of the animals. This was not something that was required of the animals to have life directly breathed into them. This is the creator God himself imparting life to man. And the Bible is not just teaching us that God breathed air into him. That's not what it's saying. He breathed the very breath of life into him. Another contradiction to theistic evolution, which teaches that man evolved from the living creatures. There was no half man, half ape. God breathed life directly into man. Now, Genesis 2-7 is kind of famous for another reason. Genesis 2-7 is the text that former President Bill Clinton used, ripping it completely out of context. He tried to use it for his support of, of all things, abortion. While all at the same time trying to suggest to gullible Christians who don't know their Bible that Clinton is one of us. He's on our side. He, he quotes the Bible. He claimed that the mention of breath of life shows us that babies aren't human until they breathe, until they are born. It was actually just an excuse. It was an excuse by a perverted man for him to veto bans on partial birth, abortion. But if we use his logic, since Adam began life as an adult, we could say life doesn't begin until you are an adult. Makes no sense. I just want you to recognize that enemies of God will use scripture. They will use scripture very often for purposes that are not godly, to twist it, to usher in power, death, and control. So the same basic elements that God used to create the earth, God used to make man. Suppose we we're going to make a human body. We get some scientists together and we're going to make a human. We would need some things. What would we need? We would need 58 pounds of oxygen. We would need 50 quarts of water, two ounces of salt, three pounds of calcium, 24 pounds of carbon, some chlorine, some phosphorus, some fat. Iron, sulfur, glycerin. So we bring these things home, and we got them all. We, we shopped. Maybe we bought them on Amazon. Maybe we didn't. But we got them all home. And there it is. There's your do-it-yourself kit to making a human body. But it doesn't come with instructions. It's so complex, and no one even fully understands it. A mere piece of skin the size of a postage stamp requires 3 million cells. And it requires 3 feet of blood vessels, 12 feet of nerves, 100 sweat glands, 15 oil glands, and 25 nerve endings. And yet the evolutionists would have us believe that this all just came together by chance. See, the Bible has a much better explanation. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. It is a testimony of the wisdom and power of our God. Man's body had been completely formed, but was lifeless. 
Life can only come from life. It's a very important principle. Life can only come from life. And since God alone is the only self-existent being, this life must have come from him. And it was at this point that Adam had a soul, a mind, emotions. Man didn't get a soul. He became one. He became a person. The Hebrew language and the Hebrew people did not think of a soul apart from a body. And so this is why the King James correctly translates this, that the man became a living soul. A soul with a body is the idea here. Now with a garden to tend, he's got work to do. Verse eight, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the Septuagint, if you've ever wondered where the word paradise comes from, we refer to it as paradise. Well, that's because of the Septuagint. The Septuagint uses the Greek word that is translated into English as paradise. And that's where that idea for Eden comes from. Eden simply means in the Hebrew delight. That's all it means, delight. But it's impossible, hear this, impossible for us to know where it was. We don't know. The flood of Noah's day was catastrophic and it completely rearranged the earth. Don't assume that the world after the flood is the same as the world before. We're told it was in the east, but that is not specific. Verse 9 in the text expands, verse 8, God made the trees, many with fruit. But there were two trees that were different. The Hebrew is calling attention to this fact that there were two trees that were different, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Physical death was the punishment for sin. Adam would not have died had he not sinned. And we know from the study of Revelation 22, verse 2, that in the eternal state, the tree of life will once again flourish again where there will be no more possibility of sin, where death and pain will be no more. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. What is that? What is that? Well, it's called a, a merism in grammar. It's two opposites, really. Two opposites standing for everything in between. It's like saying, be careful not to speak anything to that person, good or bad. Also with the meaning, everything in between. And so with it, this tree carries the concept, this is important, of having the power to decide for yourself what is or what is not in your best interest. The power to make responsible decisions. The power to decide for themselves what is in their best interest and what is not. To be like God with this ability. Now, was the fruit an apple? You see this everywhere. Was the fruit an apple? Well, that actually comes from a misunderstanding of the Latin Vulgate. Nothing tells us it was an apple. Sorry to burst your bubble. Here comes another common misunderstanding. Let's pick it up in verse 10. It says, now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hittakel. It is the one which goes towards the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. There's a lot of thoughts on where these were. Christopher Columbus thought that the uh, Ornico River in South America, that that was the water that was coming down from the Garden of Eden. 
That's what his thought was. Then again, he also thought he was on the east coast of Asia, so we'll take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> Author W.F. Warren of the 19th century, he located Eden of all places, North Pole. He thought it was up there. British General Charles George Gordon of the 1800s, he thought the garden was a beautiful island in the Indian Ocean. That sounds nice. People have placed it at the head of the Persian Gulf. Others say it's in Iraq. That's not where I think of paradise. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, then divided and became four rivers. Notice this text is telling us that Eden was watered by rivers, but they're nothing like the rivers today because today small rivers come together and they flow into large rivers. They make large rivers. Here we have the complete reverse, one river splitting into four. And a lot of people get confused in verse 14 when it mentions the Tigris, or as some translations put it, the Hittichel. It also mentions the Euphrates. And so right away, people look at this, and they think of these modern rivers with these modern names, thinking that the Eden was in Mesopotamia. But you got to remember this. The flood completely rearranged all of the land. And this is one of the greatest stumbling blocks for people in Genesis, that Moses described things that don't match up to today. But the flood was gigantic, large enough to cause the continents to separate. The Mediterranean Sea is probably a result of the flood. The Red Sea was probably fertile land. The Persian Gulf, probably from the flood. These rivers described in Genesis don't have the same source that they do today. Eden was probably buried under massive, massive layers of sediment. So how do we explain then rivers with the same name? How do we explain the Tigris? How do we explain the Euphrates? It's referred to as linguistic borrowing because the one constant would have been the people after the flood. It's the reason in North America that we have New London or New England. Same thing happened after the flood. Names were given to new places that reminded the people of the old places. Names carry over. And then we read this, starting in verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God now placed Adam in the garden. And I want you to notice that Adam was given work to tend and to keep. He was to keep the garden. Work is not a result of the fall. Being lazy is a result of the fall, but not work. The work wouldn't have been as difficult for sure before the fall, but man was still to work. And there will be work to do in the coming kingdom of God. We know this from Scripture. It mystifies my mind. It really does how lazy Christians or selfish Christians sometimes, they think that they'll be rewarded with great responsibility in the coming kingdom of God. It just doesn't make sense to me. Adam was given great freedom to eat of the fruit trees, great freedom, all except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day he would eat of it, he would surely die. He was saying to Adam, dying, you shall die. If you eat it, dying spiritually, you will die physically. Dying spiritually, you'll die physically. Adam had a perfect environment. He had perfect health, unbroken fellowship with the creator. But he had a choice. He was given the opportunity to reject God's word. Now, here's what I love about the garden situation so much. To eat of the fruit of that tree had to be deliberate. 
I mean, it's not like you're going to accidentally eat of the fruit. It's not like you're going to stumble across it and accidentally trip into it and eat of the fruit. It's not going to happen. So his disobedience would have been a deliberate act of the will against God. And then the question comes often is, did Adam understand this? Did he understand? Did Adam understand what death is? Let's talk about this for a second. First observation I see in my Bible is I don't see God sitting in the garden teaching Adam the ABCs. He's not sitting there with little flashcards teaching him phonics and teaching him words. Instead, we see that God programmed Adam with language. It has to be that. Language comes from God. Don't bring an evolutionary mindset to Genesis when it comes to language. Language comes from God. Adam was created on what day? Day six. He named the animals on day six. So he didn't have a lot of time to learn if you're thinking he learned and created language. He was created on day six. He named all the animals on day six. He didn't have time to learn a language. God gave Adam language and the ability to understand words from the moment of creation. And didn't God do the same thing to the clans at the Tower of Babel in chapter 23? He gave them the languages of natural understanding of them. And then Adam named the animals. Let's watch it in verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Verse 18 is the first time in the book of Genesis that we are told that something was not good, but be careful with this. Here, not good just simply means incomplete. Man was incomplete without a wife. I heard a story of three guys out hiking in the woods and they came to a raging river, not sure what to do next. The first guy looked up to heaven and, and said, God, please make me strong enough to cross this river. And poof, he had big, strong arms and legs. And he began to swim. And two hours later, after a fierce struggle, he made it to the other shore. Well, the second guy saw this and he looked to the heavens and said, dear God, give me enough tools to cross this river. And poof, he's given a rowboat. An hour later, after nearly capsizing, he made it to the other shore. And the third guy said, dear God, Please make me smart enough to cross this river. And poof, God made him, yeah, you know it, into a woman. And then she stopped and asked for directions. And she walked five minutes upstream, crossed the bridge. And that, men, is why it is not good to be alone. Ladies, you are welcome. Loneliness is actually pretty serious business. Japan has recently just appointed a minister of loneliness because of their high suicide rates. Just in October of last year alone, Japan had 2,153 suicides. People just killing themselves, no longer wanting to be alive. One company even there designed a robot to hold someone's hand when people are lonely. 31% of Americans are lonely. That doesn't surprise me. One in five Christians is lonely. In the ministry, I see lonely people all the time, people who have never learned to serve Jesus Christ, never learned to serve others. That's where loneliness is found. Servants of Christ never tend to be lonely, but people who are self-centered, people who focus on themselves are often lonely. See, if you get your eyes off of yourself and onto Christ and onto helping others, you'll never be lonely, you'll never be bored. 
And men, hear me, you're not going to like this. Being married is not the answer by itself. In order for companionship to replace isolation, there must be unity in marriage. See, marriage comes from God. He knows the hearts and needs of every one of his people. And nothing can be worse than an unhappy marriage. A marriage where two people are focused on themselves and are divorced from the mind and will of God. And I've seen a number of people over the years long with a pain in the heart, a deep pain for a godly Christian spouse. Marriage is important. It's very important. It's vitally important. God created man and woman to be bound by a lifelong connection. And then God gave the animals to be named. And I want you to think about what God did here. God brings them before Adam, but no helper comparable to him was found. As the animals were paraded in front of Adam, think of this, each of them, male and female, would highlight the loneliness of the man. And that should be the wording in verse 18, a helper fit for him, comparable to him, a companion just like him, but not the same. It means literally a helper according to his opposite. That's the idea. She would be man's counterpart, a companion. Celebrate those differences you have between men and women. Celebrate those differences in the marriage. She was not to be a doormat. She was not to be a servant. She was to be someone like him, someone he could fellowship with. None was like him. He couldn't help but feel alone and incomplete. Now, verse 19, it isn't telling us that God was creating these animals after he created Adam. The text is telling us that before this, God had formed the animals, but now he was bringing them before Adam to be named, which indicated the authority God gave to Adam over creation. Now, people attack Genesis all the time for a lot of reasons, but they attack it here because they say there was not enough time on day six to do all this, including naming the animals. But first of all, God brought them to Adam. That helps. He didn't have to go hunt them down. He didn't have to locate them. That helps greatly. Second of all, we're talking about the kinds of animals, not every specific species. And the text doesn't even tell us he named every animal. It doesn't say that. It mentions the livestock, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field, but nothing about the fish, nothing about the marine life, nothing about the insects. This easily could have been done in a day. And pick it up with verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Animals are wonderful creations by God. They, they absolutely are, but they cannot replace the companionship intended to come through a spouse because they are not made in God's image. They're not people. God put Adam here into a deep sleep. God used the rib of Adam to create Eve. This goes back to Genesis 1.17 where we saw that both the man and the woman were made in the image of God. And Genesis 2 shows the close connection between men and women, that they were equal with different roles, taken not from the head of Adam to rule over him, taken not from his foot to be trampled on, but from his side to be his companion, from under his arm to be protected from near his heart because she is to be loved and cherished. And no, this does not mean, men, that you have one less rib. Anybody else think that as a kid? I used to. It doesn't mean that. If you cut off your finger, your kids are still going to have all their fingers. You're okay. Same with the rib. 
But look at the end of verse 22. Basically, Adam, Adam, here's your wife. This was a marriage made by God himself. Look at how the ESV puts it. It captures some of the idea of Adam's words. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. See, the Hebrew shows much more excitement than the English translations. Adam was excited at this point. Inherent in the meaning of the text is the idea that Adam was happy to see his wife. He received his wife because he trusted in God's wisdom, God's goodness, God's integrity. Just as it is essential for every husband and every wife to be thankful for the mate that God has given us. Be thankful for your spouse. The differences that we have, they're good. They're to be celebrated because God has brought those differences into your life to help us shape us to be the people he wants us to be. See, if you don't see your mate as a good gift from God, your marriage is going to have problems. If you don't see them as a good gift, you're going to have problems because this is telling God that you reject God's provision in your life. It demonstrates a lack of faith. It demonstrates disobedience to God. And it shows that you are unhappy with the character of God, thinking that your plans are better than his. See, Adam was now beside himself. Sorry. Adam called her woman. Some of you are getting that. An obvious reference to his understanding of language on day six. He understood the language. And an obvious reference that acknowledges that she is part of him and that they need each other to be complete. And then we are given the institution of marriage by God. Here's what God thinks of marriage, starting in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, this passage shows how the marriage of Adam and Eve was a precedent for every marriage that came after. One man, one woman for life. That's it. Isn't that simple? One man, one woman for life. Heterosexual monogamy. Those who attack this are insulting God himself. God is not going to be mocked on this point. Let us as Christians learn to take up the mindset of God about marriage. Let us learn to defend marriage from those who attack it because they're attacking God. And that offends me. Satan has attacked marriages because as you attack marriages, the family unit breaks down, churches break down, countries break down. It is the backbone of society. Marriage is the first institution created by God because children need training and protection by their parents. God ordained that the home would be built on mutual love and respect and that it, the family, not the government, should be the basic unit of human authority and instruction. See, the day is already here, especially in the lower 48, where parents are losing their rights to educate their children. We also see that upon marriage, a man should leave his parents. It is not that he is to forsake his parents. He is to continue to honor them. They are to help them in their old age. But it does mean that his emotional ties and priorities in life now must be focused and shifted and centered on the new family unit, on his wife. See, Genesis is teaching us that this new connection of a man to his wife is, is so strong that he is joined to his wife, that he should stick like glue, like gorilla glue or something. They should become one flesh, 
Because sexual intercourse was ordained by God before the fall and within marriage, it's a good thing. It's a very good thing. There, Adam and Eve were naked, and they were unashamed because sin had not yet entered into the world. See, this verse is not perverted. It's beautiful. It describes the innocence, describes the openness, and the trust that existed between this perfect couple. This was the world's first wedding. What a wedding it was. It took place in paradise. The wedding planner was God himself. It's amazing. Some of you know the story I've told here that took place in October of 2011 when Gordon Yeager, age 94, and his wife Norma, age 90, died exactly one hour apart after 72 years of marriage. That's beautiful, 72 years. They were holding hands when they died. The couple left their home in Marshalltown, Iowa, to run some errands, but they never made it because a car accident, of course, sent the couple to the emergency room with broken bones and other injuries. And when they were transferred to intensive care, the, nurse, the nurses knew not to separate them. But even in the hospital, they were more concerned about each other than they were for themselves. And their son, Dennis Yeager, said she was saying her chest hurt. And what's wrong? What's wrong with dad? She was worried about dad and his back was hurting and he was asking about mom. And when it became clear that their conditions were not improving, the nurses moved them into a room together in beds side by side so they could hold hands. Gordon died at 3.38 p.m. holding hands with his wife as the family all surrounded them. Their son Dennis said it was really strange. They were holding hands and dad stopped breathing, but I couldn't figure out what was going on because that heart monitor was still going. But we were like... He's not breathing. How does he still have a heartbeat? The nurse checked and said it's because they were holding hands. It was going through him. Her heartbeat was beating through him and picking it up on the monitor. At 4.38 p.m., exactly one hour after Gordon died, Norma passed away too. And Dennis Yeager said this, they just loved being together. They were old-fashioned that way. They believed in marriage till death do you part. And Dennis also added, I don't believe there was a big secret to their marriage. Sometimes one or the other would get mad, but they worked everything out. And in the end, they chose each other, and that was it. They were committed. Genesis 2 teaches us a lot about marriage. To those that are looking to learn, it's there. It was God who instituted it. God intended it to be monogamous, not monotonous. One woman completed Adam. Men, one woman completed Adam. Can you say that? Does one woman complete you? Or do your eyes and your thoughts wander? God intended it to be a heterosexual marriage. It involves both a physical and a spiritual union. The husband is to be the head of the wife. God created Adam before Eve, and he created Eve for Adam. And hear this. A woman can be a complete person without having children. Her basic purpose in marriage is to be a companion to her husband, not just to have children. That's as cruel to say it is that. Christian marriage should, of course, seek to have godly offspring. It should be a relationship where you complete one another and model Christ's relationship to the church. God made men and women with intentional differences for a reason to help us depend on each other. 
He did it this way so we can serve him. So celebrate those differences, recognize that you need each other, and have one heartbeat for the Lord because you also, Christian, have a marriage that is made by God. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.